You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Morning. My name is Kyler. I am the youth pastor or next generation's pastor here at Grace. And I get the wonderful opportunity to share God's word with you this morning. So I'm happy that you're here. What's up, Jazz? See you. Um, so yeah, so um, I actually need everyone to stand right back up. I know y'all just spent a lot, uh, long time standing up. We're going to do something together that I like to do with our students every single Wednesday night. So you can, you're going to get a little flavor of what we do on Wednesday nights. Uh, and to start our time off on Wednesday nights, we're going to recite the Shema together. Who knows what the Shema is? That's all right. If you don't know, I would love to tell you about it. The Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 when Moses is giving the greatest commandment to the people of Israel. It says something like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And still to this day, Jews, when they gather together, they will, they will recite this together in Hebrew. Now, we know Jesus adds to this commandment in the Gospels. He says, the second is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this morning, we're going to recite that together. Does that sound good? All right, but we're not going to do it in boring old English, okay? We're going to do it in, in Hebrew. Who knows Hebrew? Sweet, I get to teach you some Hebrew this morning. That's awesome. All right, so a couple of things that we're going to do. Uh, the first thing has to do with our pronunciation of the Hebrew language. It's kind of a weird language, and it makes a lot of weird sounds, okay? One of those sounds is kind of like a chat, chat, cat choking on a hairball, okay? So it sounds kind of like a <laughs> sound, all right? So on the count of three, I need everyone to practice their best cat choking on a, hair, a hairball voice. Ready? One, two, three. <laughs> Y'all sound ridiculous. That's... <laughs> All right, so uh, that's the first thing we're going to do. The second thing that we're going to do is we're going to raise our right pinky in the air, okay? Our right pinky's in the air. Now, this is a symbol, okay? If, if our God can hold the entire world in the palm of his, of his hand, he can save you with the outstretch of his pinky. He's a very mighty and a powerful God, okay? Now, if you're wondering why we're not raising our left pinky, well, they didn't have toilet paper back then. So we're going to keep it with our right pinkies in the air, okay? We'll say it line by line, first in Hebrew, then in English. You'll just repeat after me after each line. That sound good? Okay. Shema Israel. Adonai Elohinu. Adonai Chad. Vehafta. Ed Adonai. Elohecha. Vechol. Nevavcha. Uvchol. Nafsheha. Uvchol. Meodecha, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Amen. Have a seat. Awesome. Thank you all for joining with me on reciting the Shema together. This morning, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. So go ahead and be turning in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. 
And as you're turning there, uh, I want us to be thinking about this image that comes from God's word uh, pretty consistently. If you read the Bible enough, particularly in the Old Testament, you will find a consistent emphasis and command for parents, parents of God's people, to raise their children in the ways of the Lord, teaching them the statutes and the commands of the Lord. Now, there could be a lot of reasons why we see this command to include familial stability, cultural success, economic prosperity. But I want to submit to you this morning that the reason we see this command over and over and over again in in the text or in the scriptures is because God wants his faithfulness or faithfulness to him to continue throughout the generation. The idea is this, that parents would, uh, faithful parents would raise their children in the ways of the Lord, cultivating faith in them, so that one day they would grow in faith and spiritual maturation, and then teach their children and cultivate them in the faith, and on and on and on. Now, we know, as most of you in here are parents, or have been parents, we know this is one of the greatest blessings in life, when you raise your children and, and you put much care and love and dedication into raising your children in the ways of the Lord, and you see them grow in spiritual maturation following the Lord as an adult. That's an incredible blessing. It's also one of the greatest heartaches in life. When you, when you uh, raise your children in the ways of the Lord to, to see them grow and then reject that way. Perhaps some of you this morning are dealing with that very issue this morning. What is with this image, this intense care of a parent over a child, uh, this image is what's going to help us understand what's going on here with Paul and the Philippians. I believe it's the same type of relationship. So we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, only going through three verses, verses 8 through 11. I won't make you stand up. You can sit down as we read the text. These are the words of the Apostle Paul written to the church at Philippi. But he did it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which makes this God's word for us this morning. God's word says this, starting in verse 8. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and to the praise of God. I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive in. Uh, Our God, we, we come to you as your people, humble before you, in recognition of your all strength and power. And so, Father, as we come to gather around your word, uh, Father, we ask that you, would, uh, that you would radically transform us. Father, that you would pour out your spirit, your transforming power onto us, Father. That you would transform our minds to think differently and you would transform our hearts uh, to desire differently, Father. Would you use this word to make it come alive to us this morning and to transform us? So, Father, we ask that you use, it, use this time for your glory and honor and to our benefit. Amen. So uh, ultimately what we see here is we see a prayer of Paul over the Philippians. Ultimately what he's praying for is that the Philippians would grow in spiritual maturation, that they would grow into Christ's likeness. 
Now, there's a lot of big ideas that can come out of this text, but a big idea that I'm going to focus on this morning is that through Christ, believers are empowered to increase in righteousness so as to fulfill their call to bring glory and praise to God. Now, I'm going to say that again. Through Christ, you as believers are empowered to increase in righteousness so as to fulfill your call to bring glory and praise to God. Now, I think Paul communicates this through three uh, distinct ideas. And just to warn you, I'm Southern Baptist trained, okay? And so for my first time preaching to you, I figured I, just, I was obligated to give you some classic Southern Baptist alliteration points. Okay, so this morning we have three points. We have the petition of the prayer in verses 8 through 9. And then in 10 and first part of 11, we see the purpose of the prayer. And then at the end of verse 11, we see the praise of the prayer. So, uh, but before I dive into my outline, though, there's a little bit of context I want to give you. It's going to help us understand what's going on here in, the, in this letter. Uh, Paul planted the church of Philippi on a second missionary journey. And the planting of the Philippian church happened under some pretty miraculous circumstances. In other words, it wasn't really planned. But Paul, sorry, but God in his sovereignty planted the church at Philippi as a result of Paul's efforts. Now, what's important for us to understand contextually is that the Philippian church was the first church planted on the European continent. That is important for later in the text, but this is the first church planted in this area. So I want you to put yourself in Paul's shoes for just one moment. Paul, the, the apostle, a Jew that was formerly persecuting the church, called into faith under miraculous circumstance on the road to Damascus, and he's given a pretty monumental task. He's told to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, uh, to this point, the, Genti- the, the gospel message had gone outside of the Jews, but very seldom. So you can imagine Paul uh, under the weight of what it means to take the gospel to the rest of the nations. This is a pretty monumental task. And we know Paul would endure hardship after hardship in his endeavor to take the gospel to the nations. Persecutions, floggings, beatings. He was shipwrecked three times. Look, that's three times more than, more than you or me will ever be shipwrecked for our faith, right? He was, even, he was in prison. He's, even in this letter, he's writing from a Roman prison talking about the gospel. Suddenly, God orchestrates this miraculous event to plant this church at Philippi. And you can just imagine Paul for a moment, the relief he must have had. Can you imagine that he may have had some doubt at some point? God, is your gospel really going? Is this work really happening? Is my imprisonment, are these floggings really making a difference? Ah, yes. God's gospel is going forth. Churches are being planted. I think Paul would have had a very special relationship with this church at Philippi. Because of its location and its miraculous planting. And so Paul writes to them this letter as a thank you letter for their continued support in ministry. And he also writes to them as an encouragement to grow in Christ's likeness. The Philippians seem to be a house divided over whether they should keep supporting Paul or not. And Paul writes to them to thank them for their faithfulness and continued support of ministry. And this letter has the word joy written all over it. And this is pretty astonishing considering that he's writing from a Roman prison. 
for, for Paul, he has Christ. And being shaped into Christ's likeness is everything to him. So you can sit in a Roman prison and have an incredible amount of joy because you have Christ and you're being formed in his likeness. This is an incredible truth for the Christian. And so this is an encouragement for us as we, as we dive into the letter. So it's with this context that I want to dive into the outline, reading again in verses 8 through 9, looking at the petition of the prayer, what Paul asks for specifically from the Lord. Read with me again in verses 8 and 9. For God is my witness. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So the first phrase we have here is God is my witness. This term carries legal ramifications as a defendant in a court case. Witnesses are brought in under oath to testify to the actions of a defendant. And so what Paul is doing here is he's placing himself in an oath relationship with God himself. Paul's about to say something. He's about to exhort the Philippians. He's about to ask the Lord for something, but he wants to, he wants to give his qualifications to the Philippians. Say, look, I'm in an oath relationship with God. What I'm about to say, the only person whose opinion that matters is God's opinion. He, he, he's given the, the Philippians his qualifications by what he's about, for what he's about to say. What's also significant here is, is his claim that God is the only uh, reliable witness here. You see, the Philippians were a house divided over whether they should keep their support of Paul or not. The, the issue was over uh, Paul's imprisonment. Paul's imprisonment would have brought uh, cultural shame upon the church. So you had a faction in the Philippian church that were saying, no, we got to drop this guy. We can't keep giving him our money or, or, or our support. And Paul's saying, look, y'all, uh, I'm in prison because of the gospel. God knows why I'm here. It doesn't matter what the culture or what the world has to believe about why I'm in prison. God knows why I'm here. The only thoughts or the opinions that matter are God's, not man's. Isn't this an incredible reminder and truth for us today, especially in a, in a culture that's, that's like ours today? Are we concerning ourselves primarily, primarily with the thoughts and the opinions of God or the thoughts and the opinions of man? God's ways don't look like man's ways. Being in prison for the gospel may look like shame to man, but it brings glory to God. Paul's saying, no, no, I'm only concerned with what God has to say and God's approval. So, the, so then the question is asked, what is God a witness of? Look at me at this next phrase. How I yearn for you all. God is a witness of Paul's love for the Philippians. Paul's prayer for the Philippians is built on his foundation of love for them. Paul has to remind the Philippians of this affection for them because his concern for them, his, his request that's about to come, would be skeletal, that is stripped of all meaning, if he does not communicate his love for them as a parent over a child. We can all think of the time when we were disciplined by our parents. And if you're like me, if your parents are like mine, you know what a good butt whooping feels like, all right? There's a big difference between being spanked uh, out of a heart or, or motivation that's uh, angered or irritated versus out of a heart that's loving and caring. When, when my dad would spank me because he was annoyed or angered, and, and my dad wasn't perfect, he's, a, he's an awesome dad, 
my response to his discipline was rebellious, spiteful, and angered. I, uh, I, I, I didn't take to his discipline very well. Now, this kind of discipline from my dad was rare, but uh, when it occurred, my heart wasn't changed because I could tell his motivation was improper. However, when I was spanked out of, a, out of a heart of love for me, when I could tell my father loved me and cared for me and wanted to build me into a young man, a man of God, I was much more receptive to the discipline, even though I despised the, the, the pain in the moment, right? No one likes that old leather belt, you know? I can look back at those instances and I can praise God because, uh, because I know the motivation of my father's heart was out of an intense love for me. You see, love drives true and authentic action. You can, you can serve, you can give, but if you don't love, it doesn't mean very much. And Paul here is expressing his love over the Philippians. Paul wants them to continue to grow in Christ's likeness, and he wants continued improvement from them, but to ask such a thing, he's, he's got to express his love for them. But notice here who Paul ascribes as the source of his love to. Is it Paul's love by which he's loving the Philippians? No. Look what he says. With the affection of Christ Jesus. So Paul's not the author of his love for the Philippians. Christ ultimately is the love, is the source of love for the Philippians. And so what Paul's doing here is he's giving us the nature of God's love. God's love is something like a pitcher of water that flows out, and it fills a cup. We can call that cup Paul for now. And as that cup fills and fills and fills, does God's love ever stop pouring? No. It flows over, and it begins to fill other cups. And those cups fill up and flow and flow and flow. This is the nature of God's love. God's love. well of love never, ever, ever runs dry. His love is so intense that he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to die for you and for me, for our wretched sin. Would God sacrifice his son on a cross only then to close up his well of love later? Absolutely not. His love flows continuously for all. Do you feel like God doesn't love you? Look, he does not with, ever withhold his love and grace from you in any circumstance. Are you feeling like it's, it's hard to love those around you? Is there someone in your life that you feel like is difficult to love? We all have people like that in our lives. Do you feel like your human or selfish efforts to love uh, are drying up? Well, you should. You can't love people properly out of, your own, out of your own selfish love. It has to flow from Christ in you. Your love for others is a result of Christ's love that's been poured into you. And the only way we can truly love others is by being filled with God's love first. So the question then becomes, what do we have to do to be filled with God's love? I believe you have to be honest with yourself. You have to to recognize your condition in the flesh and just how much grace and love you need from your Savior. Paul does this in 1 Timothy, uh, claiming himself to be the chief of all sinners. If Paul's the chief of all sinners, I I have to be something like chief supreme. (laughs) I didn't know I could rank above Paul. You have to be honest with yourself 
about your condition in your flesh, that your flesh is constantly rebelling against God. And before Christ, you were completely lost in your sin and darkness. And Christ, in his grace and his love for you, reached you and pulled you out of the depths. This is the immense love that you've received from Christ. And this is the gospel message, right? That we as sinners need justification because our sin is an offense to God. We, given our own strength and our own power, we're going to choose our own way. And so we need something external to come to us, to sacrifice for us, to transform us from the inside out. And this is what Christ has done for you. I don't know everybody in this room. Perhaps there is an unbeliever here. To you unbelievers, this is the gospel message that, that you're a sinner who needs Christ. And he so lovingly and graciously gives you himself as, as a sacrifice, as a propitiation for your sin. He takes judgment from God away from you. And you can have true and abundant life. This is simply uh, confessing sin, repenting, and believing in Christ as the Son of God who died for you. As a Christian, Knowing that you've received this, how could you refrain your love for others knowing that you've received this kind of love? I would dare say it's perhaps impossible to do that. When you humble yourself and remember what God has done for you, what you received by grace as a, as a sinner, your eyes are open to the love and grace around you, the love and grace that people around you so desperately need. And so then this becomes the very request uh, by Paul to the Lord over the Philippians. Look with me in verse 9. And Paul says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. And Paul prays to the Philippians that their love would continue to abound more and more. As the Philippians have received love from Paul and from Christ, so their love is to be outward, to flow from them. Now, we don't have the object of who is to receive this love. Is it those within the church, Christians, or is it those outside the church? And as, as Pastor Brad's famous answer is yes. <laughs> it's to both. So first, let's look at loving those within the church, within these walls. Within the church, Paul desires the Philippians, that the Philippians' love for one another would result in their unification, in their striving together for spiritual maturation of one another. The desire here is that the Philippians would carry out all those one another's of the New Testament. Things such as forgiving one another, serving one another, admonishing one another, exhorting one another, and a plurality of others. The result of their love for one another, the result of fulfilling these commands would result in their strong unification as a body of believers. And Paul desires for the Philippians to remain in right teaching and belief that he has taught them by living out the one another's with love, that they would be able to recognize the dogs as the false teachers, the ones that create division, cast them out, and to grow in, in unification for one another. The main idea here is that if, by loving each other within this room, that we would be we would become truly and wholly unified, ultimately that way we're effective for the gospel. This church, this local body of believers is to shine as a beacon of light for the lost around it. So this turns to the second object of our love, loving those outside the church. The ultimate goal, and 
in the Philippians' obedience in loving one another is that the, the world around them would come to know Christ. If you remember in the beginning, I told you that this was the first church planted on the European continent. Why I think Paul would have had a special relationship with this church I believe he would have seen this church as a launching pad for the gospel for the rest of the continent. I think in Paul's mind, he, may, he perhaps would have been thinking like this, that how well it goes with the Philippian church is how well it goes with the gospel on, on the rest of that continent. He wants them to be a springboard for the gospel to explode to the rest of the region. I think he would have had this idea in mind for every church he planted, but specifically for this one. And so uh, what, Paul, what I believe Paul's trying to teach here, or what Paul's asking for here, is that the Philippian church would get it right, that they would be so unified and so loving of one another and carrying out these one another's of the New Testament that, that it would result in their effective gospel proclamations, that their love within these walls would result in the expansion of these walls, that our love for the for, for those outside the church, for the lost, that they would come to know Christ. So I believe the church uh, must be in proper working order for it to be effective in its gospel proclamation. Listen, if we're, if we're dividing this room, how, how are we going to bring people in? So I think this is, this is Paul's request. But notice, he doesn't want their love uh, to not be defined. He says uh, he wants their love to be their love to abound more and more, but with knowledge and all discernment. Paul does not leave the request of love for the Philippians without a qualifier. He recognizes the danger of us as humans trying to define what love is. This is a pretty hot topic in our culture today, isn't it not? He wants the Philippians' love to abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. So the question is, what is love? We know from 1 John chapter 4 that God himself is love. Now, I could spend probably a whole nother sermon on, on what this means. Uh, but, but just sufficient for now, we know that any definition of love, any proper definition of love, has to be tied into the nature of God and his character. So that means any definition of love that is not tied into the nature of God and his character is not a true definition of love. Because love springs forth from God. So, uh, believe it or not, (laughs) love indeed is not love. God is love. And the source of love. And and any definition of love has to flow from God and his character. How's biblical love applied? There's a lot of answers to that question. But what I want to encourage you to do uh, this afternoon is go and and read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm not going to quote it this morning. But I want you to go read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the famous love chapter. Many of us are familiar with that chapter, perhaps at a wedding or a cute little sign above a fireplace mantle, right? It's all cute and makes us feel all warm and bubbly inside, and it's good stuff. But I want you to, I want you to read that chapter knowing its true context. Its true context is actually a church that was divided over spiritual giftings. The church at Corinthians were fighting over which gift was more important, the gift of prophecy or the gift of tongues. And if you look at the layout of, of first, the letter of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 12, Paul addresses, I believe, prophecy or tongues. Chapter 14, he addresses prophecy or tongues. But he stops in the middle of that discussion to talk about love. 
So what is Paul trying to communicate there? I believe Paul's trying to communicate that, look, the gift of prophecy is beneficial to you. The gift of tongues is beneficial to you. Whatever spiritual gifting you have to the church is beneficial. But listen, if you're not loving one another, it's not worth it. It's nothing but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So I encourage you to read through that chapter with that context in mind. And it'll help you understand and discern with knowledge what practical love looks like. So after we get, the, we get the petition of the prayer, what Paul asks for, we can move to the second part of the outline, the purpose of the prayer. Why does Paul ask this from the Philippians? Look with me in verses 10 through 11. So, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Paul's prayer for love over the, over the Philippians will, will naturally cause two types of transformation. It will cause an internal transformation that naturally, naturally leads to an external transformation. This, is, this is also a result of the gospel. Love for one another that is defined by knowledge of God allows for believers to understand what is excellent. Approving what is excellent simply means discerning what is good from from what is bad, understanding right action from wrong action, right belief from wrong belief. A godly love for one another impacts the way in which we interact with one another. And so uh, when we take on love for others in the manner that God has loved us, we understand in the fullest way possible how to believe and act in the world. This internal transformation of approving what is excellent applies to two areas of your life. It applies to both your, your head and your heart. That your mind will be transformed to think differently than what you used to think. That you will think in the ways of God informed by the ways of God, informed by Scripture, and not by your flesh. And then that knowledge will be matched with a heart transformation that you will desire to do that which is right over that which is wrong. So not only will you have the ability to to know which is right over which is wrong, you'll have the desire to do that which is right and which is wrong. And that's what we really call sanctification, right, when those two things match. When what we know is right matches our desire. And so many times in life, we're off on one of those two things, aren't we? Sometimes in life, we know what's right, but we don't want to do it. And there's sometimes in life, we want to do what's right, but we don't know what that is. I think sanctification, a part of that is when those two things match. And so it's, a, it's an internal change of the, of the mind and the heart. It looks kind of something like uh, being able to discern that chocolate chip cookies are better than oatmeal raisin cookies, Okay. That takes, that takes some intense spiritual sanctification to understand that. But then that internal change leads to external change. Look what Paul says. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. What's Paul talking about here? He's talking about righteousness. That your life will look more righteous. The internal change will naturally and consequently lead to an external change. Once action and behavior has been corrected from a heart of godly love, the next and natural result for the Philippians and for all believers is that we would be one day presented as blameless before God because of Christ's work in us. 
You see, this is the difference between the true gospel and the false gospel. The false gospel, maybe something like legalism, looks like this. That your external change leads to internal change. That's not the gospel. The gospel is internal change that leads to external change. Our lives as Christians ought to look more and more righteous as we walk in faith with Jesus. The natural result of a life that is ever becoming like Jesus is that one day it will be complete. It's a gradual and a slow transformation. In our culture, we don't don't really like this term of righteousness very much, do we? It it stinks of pomp and, and pride and uh, we, we often think of self-righteousness when we think of just that term. But uh, let me submit to you this morning that the Christian life ought to look more righteous. But it's not an effort of your own accord to please God. It's the natural result of the internal change that you've received. So uh, let me ask you this question. Does your life look different now than what it did five years ago, ten years ago, a year ago? As a Christian, I believe it should. This is not your own doing. This is the work of God in you. And so we can see God's faithfulness by looking back at our lives and seeing how we've become more and more and more like Jesus by God's incredible grace. And we call that righteousness. We call that process sanctification. And ultimately what Paul's doing here, he he points the, the attention of the Philippians and our attention to the end, that day when we're actually presented as blameless. What a glorious day that will be when we no longer have to toil and strive, when we no longer have to deal with this flesh and this humanity and the evil that's present in the world, that one day Christ will fulfill the work that he has begun and we will be presented as pure and blameless in the presence of God. This fills us with incredible hope because if you're human in this room, you're struggling. Listen. Even though it doesn't look like victory right now, Christ has claimed a victory because it will come to the end by his promise. Christ will extinguish the darkness and, and the fullness of his light will dwell among his people. And it may not look like it right now, but Christ has claimed that victory. And so uh, our next phrase then, Paul gives us an illustration of what this righteousness looks like or the nature of it. He, he brings in fruit language. I, I like me some bananas. It's filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. This is a reiteration of what will happen to the believer as a result of Christ's work. He just uses an illustration. What's the nature of a fruit? A fruit is a naturally occurring thing, right? <laughs> will you ever find an orange growing in the middle of a cornfield without orange trees? No, because orange trees produces oranges. Will you ever find an apple tree, an apple growing in the middle of an ocean on a vine? No, because apple trees, unfortunately, can't float, right? Apples grow on apple trees. Oranges grow on orange trees. Corn fields produce corn. This is the nature of righteousness. Those that walk with Jesus produce righteousness. It's a natural occurring process. It's that internal change that results in external change. It's not only knowing that the chocolate chip cookie is better than the oatmeal raisin, but it's throwing the oatmeal raisin in the trash can and then eating the chocolate chip cookie. You can't tell, like cookies. The good spiritual fruit that we naturally produce is 100% of Christ and Christ alone. But we should be able to see evidence of it. So while we don't produce it in ourselves, we should be able to see the evidence of his produce. 
And it grows naturally from us. A faithful life will eventually be complete. It will eventually look like him, the one to whom it is faithful. Christ is maturing us by his power, and one day we will be like him. Perfect, holy, righteous because of his work. So this, is the, this then is the purpose of the prayer, that we as believers would mature and grow in Christ's likeness that we would grow in righteousness as a result of Christ's work. So then what is the end goal? What is Paul's ultimate aim in his prayer? Let's look at me at the end of verse 11 at the praise of the prayer. Paul simply says, to the, to the glory and praise of God. Now, this almost seems like an unnecessary phrase, right? Christians are like, of course God gets the glory, of course God gets the praise, we know this. But what I think Paul is doing here, I think he recognizes the danger of living righteously as, as believers. You may be like, what? There's a danger in living righteously as believers? Yes, there's a danger. The danger is this, that we would take the credit. That we would think that we've done the work. That we would receive the glory and honor that's due to Christ because of Christ's work in us. Y'all, this is how broken that we are, that even in Christ's transformation, that we still have this tendency to to claim it for ourselves. Look what I can do. Look what I have done. No, this is only the work of Christ in you. He matures you. He makes you like him. So then this becomes the most necessary phrase in this entire passage of scripture, to the glory and praise of God. It's all him. He receives the full honor, the full glory, the full praise because of his work in us. And so what? What do we do as as we come to a close? I think Paul is, is telling us to do two things. One, he's exhorting us as a body of believers to love one another within this room. Paul is calling us, Grace Community Church, to be distinguished by our love for one another within these walls. Is Grace Community known for its love for one another? Are we all engaged in selfless love for one another that leads to selfless service? Do we all love one another and carry out those one another's of the New Testament? Are you giving to the body of believers what God has gifted you in spiritual giftings to promote love and unity within these walls? Are we doing our part? You see, for us to be effective out there in our world and culture for the effects of the gospel, we have to be unified in this room. So I exhort you, build a unity within the church. Let let Christ's power work through you to love one another, to serve one another, to fulfill your part in this community. So that way we may be a unified group of believers that becomes ultimately effective for gospel outreach. We want Grace Community to be a beacon, a shining light to the lost world. We want the world to look at Grace Community and be like, wow, they talk different. They act different. They love different. They live different. It's authentic. It's all real. It's, it's genuine. Man, I want to be a part of that. Let it be a, a beacon of light to the, to the dark. But we can't accomplish this kind of love on our own accord, can we? We've established this is all God's work. So what is this also a call for? It's a call for us to pray. Prayer is the ultimate symbol that we're dependent on God. And so uh, 
the call to pray is a call to cry out to God for him to continually to pour out his spirit for us so that we may continue to become less like me and more like him. And Paul leads us by example. He's an apostle. And yet, he's asking that the Lord would complete the work in the Philippians. Paul, Paul doesn't believe he can complete the work in the Philippians. He doesn't think he can mature them, even though he planted the church. He knows the only one who's able to do this is God. And so he prays. And so as I close, uh, I, I just want to give you a, a few Practical tips on prayer. How do we pray? Well, first thing I want to encourage you to to do is to pray out loud. If you're like me, you have a tendency to pray uh, silently in your head. There's something different uh, when we pray and, and when our words flow from us and fill a room. They kind of settle. They kind of swarm us. Get your words out in the air. Let them float. Let them circulate a little bit. Let, let your words fill the room. I think this will help you to concentrate and to, to help keep you from wanting to doze off a little bit if you're like me. The second thing I want to challenge you, challenge you to do is to pray without distraction. We all know the natural distractions that happen in the course of our day. So I want to challenge you to pick times and locations, places where you know you're not going to be distracted. Be intentional about that. Separate yourself. Get alone with the Lord. Get your words out and eliminate these distractions. Number three, I want to encourage you to pray theologically. Now, I'm not telling you to go like be an Augustine and, you know, be a, be a theologian. What I mean by this is... Uh, be methodical in the way in which you pray. When uh, We can look at the Lord's Prayer in the New Testament, and we can see a format by which Jesus gives us. If you recall, it starts by saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, the first part of the prayer is recognizing something about God and his nature. The, 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 the focus of the prayer is on who God is. And it's in light of who God is that, then we, that we then ask. God, it's because you're sovereign. God, it's because your will is done in earth, in earth as it is in heaven. I'm not going to ask you that you give me my daily bread. You see, if you're like me, we like to jump into prayer just asking the Lord. And he is a powerful God. He is able to give, but, but I want to encourage you to pray theologically. When you begin a prayer, uh, consider God. Consider an attribute about his nature, about his being. Let, let that truth soak in you, and then let the truth about God inform your request to him. Perhaps your, perhaps your request will be more in line with God's will than your own will when we remember who God is. So pray theologically. Consider who the Lord is. And, and after you consider who the Lord is, then let your request be made known to him. And finally, what do we, what do we pray for? Well, first we pray for God's will to be done. My will to be done, but God's will be, to be done. That's, that's one individually, that God's will will be done in my individual life, but also corporately. What's God going to do with Grace Community Church? What's God going to do with the world that, that his will, will will be done? Second, we pray for one another. Pray for your your brothers and sisters. Pray that they would seek and honor the Lord with every part of their lives, that God would complete their sanctification, 
Pray that God would bring humility and love to them, that they could pour out that love to others. And pray that they would selflessly give their spiritual gifts to one another. Pray that they would refrain from sin. Finally, pray for the lost. Ultimately, what is this all for? That, that these walls would expand, that God's kingdom would grow. Pray that their eyes would see, their hearts would understand, their minds would understand and be receptive to the gospel. Pray for those that don't know the Lord, that, th- that way they may be brought into God's family. And so uh, I want to pray. We, we have this prayer from Paul. We're challenged to grow in, in Christ's likeness. And ultimately, it's to result in our unification so that this, this family, family of believers may grow and that God's kingdom would grow. I want to pray. God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power in our lives. We thank you for um, the truth that it contains. And Father, uh, I ask this morning, knowing that you are powerful and able to do it, Father, that you would infect this word into your people, and that you would empower them to act and live differently in light of it. God, we again ask for transformation, both our minds and our hearts and our action, Father that we would become more and more like you. Be with this people as we continue to worship you. God, we love you. We praise you. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.